This podcast is supported by Zoll LifeVest. Sudden cardiac death is a leading cause of mortality in low EF patients with heart failure or following a heart attack. Zoll is proud to partner with your care team to pursue better outcomes together. Visit LifeVestResults.com to learn more. Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hey, Cardio Nerds. Welcome back to the Cardio Nerds Cardiac Critical Care Series, which is a multi-institutional collaboration made possible by contributions of stellar fellow leads and expert faculty from several programs led by series co-chairs, Dr. Mark Belkin, Dr. Eunice Dugan, Dr. Karin Desai, and Dr. Yoav Karpenchev. In this episode, we will learn all about cardiogenic shock and valvular heart disease with my dear friend and co-fellow, Dr. Pranoti Harmuth, and CardioNerd's veteran faculty from episode eight on cardiac amyloid imaging, Dr. Paul Kremer, faculty at the Cleveland Clinic. Stay with us. Finally, this podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. CardioNerds is an independent, fellow-founded platform with the mission to democratize cardiovascular education. To continue creating free and unbiased quality content, we are proud to collaborate with all stakeholders, including trainees, experts, fellowship programs, professional societies, industry, and patient advocacy groups. Relevant disclosures can be found in the episode show notes, and the curriculum and content is planned, produced, and reviewed solely by CardioNerds without external bias. And with that, it's time to get nerdy. Hey, Cardio Nerds. My name is Yoav Karpenchev, and I'm a currently a third-year cardiology fellow and soon-to-be critical care fellow at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm one of the co-chairs for the Cardio Nerds Critical Care Series. I'm excited today to be here with Amit Goyal, Cardio Nerds co-founder, and Karin Desai, another one of our co-chairs for this series. It is our pleasure to bring you the latest installment of the Cardio Nerds Cardiac Critical Care Series. In this episode, we will discuss shock in patients with valvular disease. We're excited to be joined today by Dr. Pranothi Hiramath. Pranothi is an interventional cardiology fellow at Johns Hopkins. She completed her MD at Harvard Medical School and did her residency in internal medicine at University of Washington. She did her cardiology fellowship at Hopkins. Welcome, Pranothi. Thanks, Yoav. I'm so excited to be here with you and a group of all-stars. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Paul Kremer today, who will be serving as our expert discussant. Dr. Kremer earned his medical degree from Harvard Medical School and completed residency training at Mass General Hospital. After residency, he worked for the Indian Health Service for two years prior to continuing his training in cardiology and advanced imaging at the Cleveland Clinic. Dr. Kremer serves as Associate Director of the Cardiac Intensive Care Unit at Cleveland Clinic and is also the Associate Director of the Fellowship Program. Welcome, Dr. Kremer. Thank you, Pranothi. It's, it's great to be back on the podcast. Before we head back to the Shulman Ward, i.e. the CardioNerds Cardiac Intensive Care Unit, let's take a bird's eye view of today's topic, valvular shock. This is a big topic, but there certainly can be clues that a patient is in valvular shock compared to the more classic cardiogenic shock in the setting of a dilated LV with reduced EF. That's right, Yoav, and we are in for a special treat today. This entire episode and script was developed by Pranothi based on what I heard was a phenomenal noon conference she delivered to her co-fellows. So acute valvular disease certainly requires a high index of suspicion and typically falls outside of our standard cardiogenic shock paradigms. Let's say you have a patient who seems like they're in cardiogenic shock, 
maybe with elevated left-sided cardiac pressures, they're cool to the touch, they've got an elevated lactate, maybe they're confused, and overall, they appear to be in a low-flow state. But yet, their LVEF on a quick glance appears to be 60%, maybe with tachycardia. I would immediately think of a few things. Is it pericardial failure with constriction or tamponade? Myocardial failure with severe restrictive disease, for instance? Electrical failure? Maybe they're in new EF and they're having a hard time tolerating it. Or, and the topic for this discussion, are they in valvular failure? In the absence of pericardial or restrictive heart disease, there may be something either blocking forward flow, that is a stenotic lesion, or causing massive backwards flow, perhaps a regurgitant lesion, or both, causing decreased cardiac output and or congestion. In this way, valvular heart disease, whether of a single valve or involving multiple valves, can cause trouble in the Shulman ward. Let's turn it to our expert. Dr. Kramer, what's your take? When we suspect cardiogenic shock in a patient, when should we begin to think of a valvular ideology, whether an acute valvular process or perhaps a second hit to a chronic valvular lesion? Excellent. Thank you. And I think that's a, a great framework that you laid out in terms of a, a patient who's presenting in cardiogenic shock to kind of have these buckets. Are we dealing with, uh, as you said, tamponade? Are we dealing with a primary myocardial problem? Or the focus today, are we dealing with acute valvular lesion? And as you noted, oftentimes the patient comes in with decompensated heart failure in the setting of a dilated left ventricle with a reduced ejection fraction, which in a way is compensatory to maintain that forward stroke volume. But it's worth noting, and again, it's not the topic for today, but often patients with fulminant myocarditis may actually present with a non-dilated ventricle with an ejection fraction that's maybe mild to moderately reduced and are in profound cardiogenic shock. So they haven't had that time to remodel to protect, if you will, their stroke volume and cardiac output. So I think in the same ways, you know, you think of that in a patient coming in with uh, acute valvular problem in the setting that, you know, their ventricle isn't going to have had time to dilate out. And so they'll oftentimes have a compensatory tachycardia to kind of maintain what is a fairly embarrassed forward stroke volume. So those are kind of the, the way I think about it in terms of the buckets and, and possibilities. Now, when the patient presents, of course, you may have some history uh, of valvular heart disease, or you may not. I mean, the patient may be relatively undifferentiated, but what it really begins, of course, with the clinical exam, some of the things that you highlighted, cool extremities, decreased mentation, tachycardia, and the stethoscope. And I think we'll get into uh, a little bit in this program, some of the challenges we have with auscultation in the setting of, of an acute valvular lesion, but that's certainly where it starts. And I think in the current era, the next thing you do after that is, is a bedside echocardiogram. And hopefully that will further clarify the diagnosis. And it's just important to emphasize that when a patient comes in with cardiogenic shock, you know, that's a phenotype, if you will. And we really need to rapidly secure what the correct diagnosis is for this patient, because often we need to make treatment decisions in a very timely fashion in order to have the best outcome for the patient. Thank you, Dr. Kramer. Patients with shock due to valvular lesions tend to present interesting and unique challenges as you're getting at and often require specific diagnostic and treatment strategies. Now that we have that framework and everyone's had their coffee, shall we get back to the Shulman Ward to take care of some patients? Yes, please. Our first patient, Mark Matson, is a 60-year-old man who came in with a late presentation of an inferior STEMI. He's now status post successful PCI to the proximal RCA, thanks to Dan Ambinder. He had been recovering in our CCU for about 12 hours when he suddenly developed trouble breathing and profound respiratory distress. On exam, he's tachycardic, hypotensive, and hypoxic despite 100% FiO2. His cardiac exam is notable for irregular tachycardia with no appreciable murmurs, rubs, or gallops. His JVD is at 15 centimeters of water 
and his extremities are cool to palpation. His chest x-ray shows diffuse bilateral pulmonary edema, and an urgent point-of-care ultrasound shows a hyperdynamic left ventricle with no significant mitral or aortic regurgitation by color floral. An ECG was negative for new recurrent ST elevation. Dr. Kremer, how would you begin thinking through the cause of this patient's sudden decompensation following STEMI? Right. So, so we just touched upon the sort of broad buckets in a patient who presents with cardiogenic shock. Is it related to LV failure? Is it related to a pericardial process or restrictive cardiomyopathy or myocarditis or tamponade? And now we're going to focus a little bit more specifically in patients after a myocardial infarction. So clearly in cardiogenic shock after a myocardial infarction, the most common cause is going to be acute LV failure. But there's certain other diagnoses that you always have to keep in the forefront of your mind for that 5 to 10% of patients that do have a, a different, uh, much more treatable cause of cardiogenic shock. So in the case that you presented, it's a patient who's had an inferior STEMI, proximal RCA, who then becomes acutely hypotensive in the CCU. So I like that an exam and cardiac echocardiogram was immediately performed because you want to make sure there hasn't been a pericardial tamponade. So you want to make sure that, that there's not a pericardial fusion that would require emergency treatment as a cause for this patient. And, you know, with a proximal RCA lesion, especially if it's proximal to the first acute marginal branch, you'd be worried about RV infarct physiology. So are we dealing with, with RV failure as the cause? And also in the history, it was a bit of a late presentation. So another consideration would be whether the patient has developed a ventricular septal rupture in this setting, usually involving the, the basal inferior or posterior septum. And then finally, in terms of valvular causes in the setting of inferior myocardial infarction, you know, we're thinking, is this a patient who has acute ischemic mitral regurgitation, or is this a patient who potentially has a papillary muscle rupture? So, you know, I think in the setting of a, of a STEMI, when a patient has cardiogenic shock, most of the times it's going to be due to LV failure, but you always have to rapidly assess for other possibilities, including acute RV failure, including pericardial tamponade, including ventricular septal rupture, and then finally an acute mitral regurgitation. Thanks, Dr. Kramer. As you alluded to, you went through kind of a broad differential of what could occur post-MI. But as we're kind of narrowing in on potentially a diagnosis of acute MR, you know, I also like to try to think about the ideology to inform the next steps. Now, we certainly have the benefit of knowing that this patient had a STEMI, but let's say, you know, what could cause acute MR if that's what, what we're trying to narrow in on? And one of those things could be infective endocarditis, could it be a spontaneous cord rupture? and then the setting of a myxomatous mitral valve or acute ischemia versus rupture like this case that we potentially may have. And as we're doing that, we're trying to think about that mitral valve apparatus and specifically what has been affected. You know, is it a leaflet perforation in the setting of endocarditis or a rupture of the papillary muscle like you mentioned here? Now, specifically regarding that pap muscle rupture, with clinical suspicion and some imaging, we can try to narrow down potentially the extent of the involvement. You know, is there a complete rupture of one or more of the papillary muscle heads? Now, that could lead to torrential MR, and I think we're going to get into this on what could happen in that setting. Or rather, is it kind of a partial rupture? You know, that could be a little bit more well-tolerated, but this patient sounds sicker. You know, I, I'm interested, Amit, you know, what else would you potentially add to evaluating for this patient? Guys, I feel like a neurologist. You know, in the setting of shock and valvular heart disease, really it's about lesion localization. And in this post-MI patient, we were concerned about acute torrential MR. We're thinking about papillary muscle rupture. And we all learned in medical training that PAP rupture is perhaps more common with an inferior MI. But let's remind ourselves just quickly why. The posterior medial papillary muscle receives its blood supply solely from the posterior descending artery, the PDA, 
while the anterolateral papillary muscle has dual blood supply and therefore a greater perfusion reserve, right, both from the LED and the circumflex. And we need to remember that pap rupture is more likely to occur in patients presenting with their first MI and or LED presentation. Great point, Garin and Amit. Dr. Kramer, what's your approach to evaluating acute severe mitral regurgitation associated with cardiogenic shock with imaging or invasive hemodynamics? So I, I think as we touched upon, it begins with a physical exam and an echocardiogram. And as we alluded to at the outset, sometimes a physical exam can be difficult in this scenario, particularly because if the patient's systemically hypotensive and they have an acute elevation in their left atrial pressure, then that gradient between the left ventricle and the left atrium during systole might be quite small. Say the systemic blood pressure is 90 millimeters of mercury and the, and the left atrial pressure is acutely 35 millimeters of mercury. The murmur can actually be soft and, and may be missed in that setting. So it's very important to immediately perform an echocardiogram to define the problem and see what you're dealing with. And what I would add in this specific scenario as well is depending upon whether the transthoracic echocardiogram secures the diagnosis, I have a low threshold to perform a transesophageal echo. And in particular, what I want to know here is, am I dealing with ischemic MR with a restricted posterior leaflet? Or as was just touched upon, are we dealing with a papillary muscle rupture? And again, the emergency approach to those situations are going to be different. So it always begins with the physical and the echocardiogram. And, you know, for us, I think most patients with cardiogenic shock, we will define their hemodynamics uh, with a right heart catheter to, to help figure out what's going to be the best approach and subsequent treatment. But really, first things first, you have to figure out what you're dealing with on the echo. And if you give me a choice of a patient in the CCU between having a service echocardiogram or a right heart catheterization, I'll take that service echocardiogram every time. But here it is going to be complementary. So if I'm thinking about this patient, I'm first going to do the echo. Have I defined the problem? And, and then next, I'm going to define the hemodynamics with the right heart catheter. Thanks, Dr. Kramer. So what you were describing was basically an acute severe MR. The driving pressure for flow across the mitral valve may be reduced. And you, you gave a couple explanations, you know, specifically if we're already hypotensive or there's this large volume load to the left atrium. You may get high left atrial pressures, and as a result, the murmur may be short and relatively soft. As a first-year cardiology fellow, and even through, throughout my cardiology fellowship, and I know a lot of other learners are in medical school and residency, it, it's hard for me to initially grasp why, if I'm not hearing something, why am I also potentially not seeing it on echo? You know, this patient, they had that early point of care ultrasound that didn't really show significant MR by color Doppler. So, Dr. Kramer, how would we explain that? Yes, that's an excellent point and really worth emphasizing that a lot of the features on our physical exam, the hemodynamic explanation is 100% applicable to what's going on when we look at the echocardiogram. So you're right, we may not hear the acute MR murmur. And for the same reason, we may have difficulty delineated on the surface echocardiogram. So just to, to delve into that a little bit more. So what's going on? So we know if we look on an echo at a mitral valve and we put on our color flow map, and we're looking at the regurgitation from the left ventricle to the left atrium, that could, in the setting of acute severe MR, where your left atrial pressure is very elevated and potentially your systemic blood pressure is low, there may not be much of a gradient there. So on your color flow map, your color Doppler, you may just see a flash of color, so you may miss it. And when you put on your spectral Doppler, for the same reason, it may be low velocity flow. So that's a very important point to emphasize on the physical exam and the echo in acute severe MR is that it could be a low velocity uh, gradient on spectral Doppler. So, for example, 
usually we think of in a patient with chronic MR, the Doppler velocity is around six meters per second. And just to elaborate a little bit on that, you know, sort of our most common equation in, in echocardiography of a 4V squared, squaring the velocity times four is sort of representing the pressure gradient between those two chambers. But in acute severe MR, where that pressure gradient has lessened, the correlate of that is that velocity that you see on the spectral Doppler will also be less, maybe three, four meters per second. So in that way, you can miss uh, acute severe MR on echo for the same hemodynamic reason that you may not be able to auscultate the murmur well on exam. Thanks for walking us through that, Dr. Kremer. And, you know, for the audience, these concerns aren't just theoretical, they're very much real. And I'm reminded about a patient that I took care of in J31, our CICU at Cleveland Clinic, when a otherwise healthy middle-aged 40s or so gentleman came in with really the first presentation, the first sign of something being awry was confusion that rapidly progressed to respiratory failure requiring intubation and eventually cardiogenic shock. He was transferred over with the notion that there might be some mechanism of acute mitral regurgitation. On exam, he was cool, he was diaphoretic, he was intubated, and th there wasn't much of an appreciable murmur. On our bedside echocardiography, what we noticed was a posterior flail. The patient actually had a, had a history of mitral valve prolapse as his only medical problem from the past. Um, but again, on color Doppler, it was not very impressive. It was the combination of the presentation, the acuity of it, the normal size left atrium, the flail on 2D echo as well as the right heart catheterization that showed massive V-waves that actually helped us put the picture together and sent the patient for surgery the same day. But again, it, it took us some time to, to be comfortable and confident that the mechanism of the patient's current presentation was uh, acute MR rather than a second hit on chronic MR. Thanks, Amit. That case is a great highlight of the point that we we're making earlier that our patients with shock due to valvular heart disease may present in unusual or unique ways. And these patients can be very sick, including our patients. Sounds like he's decompensating quickly. So I think we need to act fast. I'd quickly run through the basics of airway, breathing, as with any critically ill patients. For example, if this patient needs to be intubated, I'd rather do it sooner rather than later and maintain his hemodynamics. Next, I'd be thinking about reducing LV afterload for an acute mitral regurgitation to get more blood flowing through the aortic valve rather than back through the mitral valve. Tools I have for this would be either quick-acting medications like some nitroprusside or an intraortic balloon pump to make forward flow the past of least resistance. I suppose if they're really crashing, we might consider a temporary VAD, VA ECMO, or tandem heart as bridge to definitive therapy if within the goals of care of the patient. Dr. Kremer, as we get all hands on deck, what is your approach to stabilizing decompensating patients with acute MR? Well, that was great. I mean, I think you really hit kind of the, the high points of what our initial approach is going to be. And as you said, if we have systemic blood pressure and can give the patient a vasodilator like sodium nitroprusside, that will be what we'll start with initially. Unfortunately, in this situation, it sounds like the patient's decompensating fairly rapidly with systemic hypotension. So I agree, an intraortic balloon pump is something that we can place very quickly at the bedside to try and stabilize the situation. But I think to take a step back, what is our overall goal here? Our overall goal is to preserve end organ perfusion while we're trying to reach definitive therapy. So in this situation, if the patient is really crashing, then I agree, we would have to consider in sort of refractory shock of putting the patient on uh, mechanical support like VA ECMO. And, and again, the, the goal here is just to maintain perfusion to our kidneys, to our liver, to our brain, so that we can eventually get to a definitive treatment plan. But what's the problem if we put a patient like this on VA ECMO? Well, we're, we're getting a lot of afterload into the left ventricle and we've got wide open MR. 
So certainly we can distend the ventricle, we can get even worsening pulmonary edema. So oftentimes we do need some way to decompress the LV. So that, that could be a balloon pump. You know, oftentimes that may not be enough. You may need to put in a further kind of support device like an impella that can go into the left ventricle to try and decompress that. Uh, or something like a, a, a tandem heart, which you mentioned, or, or putting a catheter directly into the left atrium to, to take flow out of there. So, so we want to think about, okay, how can we obtain preservation of end organ uh, function? And then at the same time, how can we minimize any further deleterious effects to the heart with that support? And the part that I would add is, you know, if you have a patient like this, I think more and more we're thinking of, as opposed to going for emergency surgery, uh, which certainly may be indicated in this situation, of doing emergency structural interventions. And so you have a patient like this. We've, we've had a patient recently who had a similar presentation with a pap rupture. A patient was crashing, was placed on VA ECMO. Uh, so then we went and we did an emergency mitral clip. And the idea there is, again, not to give the patient a definitive treatment necessarily, but just to reduce the level and severity of the mitral regurgitation to kind of help you to get out of the woods. So you can, in that situation, place a mitral clip. It allows you to eventually wean your temporary mechanical support and then finally get the patient to a definitive surgery later on. So I think these are all complicated cases and, and really there's many different ways that you can go. And it really depends a lot on your clinical assessment and decision making at the bedside. There are so many wonderful pearls to take away, Dr. Kremer and um, Karin and Amit Nyov. I think that one of the last points that Dr. Kremer made, which is regarding emergent structural procedures in the setting of shock, is a growing area with increasing case reports that I've seen, particularly of mitroclip in the setting of shock. And ultimately, as Dr. Kremer said, it seems that this is like any kind of shock, all about restoring perfusion to the organs, but doing so by fixing the unique pathophysiology that is the cause. So let's round on our second patient in that thought. This is Andy Anderson, and she is a 35-year-old woman who has a history of streptococcal pneumonia and meningitis four months ago. She's coming in with sudden onset of dyspnea. She's a febrile her heart rate is 130, blood pressure is 90 over 60, she's diaphoretic, and she generally appears really unwell. Her lactate is 5, and CT scan showed no evidence of pneumonia. A quick bedside ultrasound shows that her left ventricular ejection fraction is 60%, and there is no pericardial effusion. I haven't yet differentiated what is the cause of her shock. On auscultation, I do know a diminished S1 and an early diastolic murmur at the left upper sternal border and a systolic murmur as well. So Dr. Kremer, I'm suspecting this patient has acute aortic regurgitation. What is the pathophysiology of acute aortic regurgitation and how might it explain these exam findings? And how does this pathophysiology differ from acute mitral regurgitation? Excellent. Well, well, I think a lot of the basic hemodynamic principles uh, are the same and that we're really looking at on auscultation or on echocardiogram. Often our assessments are based on what is the difference in pressure between two chambers or, or two structures and this setting the aorta and the left ventricle. So sort of similar how we were talking with acute severe MR, where you can have more rapid equilibration of LV and LA pressures in the setting of a very high left atrial pressure. An acute severe aortic regurgitation, what do you have? You have, you know, rapid increase in the left ventricular end diastolic pressure. So that short murmur that you're hearing on exam is because there's rapid equilibration between the aorta and the left ventricle. 
And then on, on echocardiography, what we often rely on for that assessment is we look at the pressure halftime on continuous wave Doppler assessment. So we look at spectral Doppler across the aortic valve, and we look at the equilibration uh, of the pressures between those two chambers. So the pressure halftime is very helpful in trying to distinguish acute versus chronic aortic regurgitation. And in the acute setting, the pressure halftime is going to be low. Generally, we say you know, below 200 milliseconds, but, you know, knowing the numbers is sort of uh, less important and more for, for the echocardiographers, but to understand the concept that when it's uh, acute AR, there's going to be rapid equilibration of the pressure between the aorta and the left ventricle. And so we're going to have a low pressure halftime. Whereas over time, chronically, sort of as we were talking about at the beginning, the left ventricle will dilate and will remodel. And in that way, the patient may have severe AR, but the pressure halftime will be much longer. So that's sort of, again, I think just a nice example of how just understanding some basic hemodynamic principles allows you to explain what you're hearing with the stethoscope and what you're seeing on the echocardiogram. Thanks, Dr. Kramer. Our next step was to get a, an echocardiogram for this patient and highlighting some of the things that you were just saying. There is evidence of severe AR from perforation of the non-coronary cusp, but the EF was normal and there was normal LV size, so suggestive of acute AR like you were discussing. There is no suggestion of an aortic root abnormality. So we have another sick patient with an acute regurgitant lesion. It sure sounds that way, Yoav. You know, I find cardiogenic shock associated with acute, severe aortic regurgitation particularly challenging. Vasopressors may worsen regurgitation, and MCS or mechanical circulatory support options are limited. Dr. Kremer, how does your approach to stabilizing acute AR differ from that of acute MR? And can you talk us through your use of vasoactive medications, MCS, or other measures to temporize these patients before definitive intervention? Thank you, Ahmed. And, and, and I agree. I think the, the acute severe AR patients, I think, made me the most nervous of all these acute valvular emergencies. Because as you touched upon, we're sort of limited in the options that we have to try and support them. And they can really deteriorate rapidly. And we don't have good ways to temporize that decline. So, you know, in, in terms of comparing it to MR, again, if you, if you have systemic blood pressure, you're going to start with vasodilators like sodium nitroprusside. But in this case, the patient's hypotensive, so we really we can't do that. And then as you touched upon, it's often difficult when we're giving vasopressors because that's going to increase the afterload and, and worsen the AR. So there's no real great answers in terms of medical therapy here. And, and there's probably a lot of practice variation from institution to institution. But, you know, if, if you have to give something, you know, we may give something uh, like epinephrine as our vasopressor uh, of choice. And then the other thing you touched upon is the limited options for mechanical circuitory support. And this relates to what we were talking about just a couple moments ago about, you know, if you put someone on support, for example, with VA ECMO, you're really causing an afterload increase to the left ventricle. And if the aortic valve is incompetent, that's going to lead to even further left ventricular distension. And so in the setting of severe AR, we're very limited in terms of what we can do for mechanical circuitory support. So we, we generally cannot do VA ECMO. Similarly, if you're, you're putting in some bad type of support. If the aortic valve is incompetent, then, then you're just sort of, the blood is still going to be regurgitant and, and causing issues. Likewise, with the balloon pump, we don't want to put that in if there's severe aortic regurgitation because that will worsen that scenario as well. So, so yeah, I think these are very, very difficult situations and, and make me very, very nervous when I'm caring for these patients. Another point to emphasize of something that we can do is maintain heart rate and, and, and keep a high heart rate. And I'll just say, kind of as an aside, I think when we're, we're caring for critically ill patients, we always need to say, 
is this tachycardia compensatory or, or is it inappropriate? Or, and even in a patient with atrial fibrillation with a rapid ventricular response, is this compensatory or is this worsening the problem? You know, so for example, if I had a patient with acute severe AR and they were an AFib with a rapid ventricular response, great. I want their heart rate to be as fast as they can. And what's the idea there? So the idea is that the more tachycardic you are, the less diastolic filling period you have. And so the less impact you're going to have of that regurgitant lesion. And of course, the more tachycardic you are with a relatively small fixed forward stroke volume, the greater your cardiac output is going to be, or, or it's going to be maintained as best as you can. So, you know, you sometimes see, for example, if this patient were an AFib with RVR, you certainly don't want to slow them down or give them amiodarone and then cardiovert them and cardiovert them into a sinus bradycardia. Their hemodynamic situation is going to be much, much worse. So in certain situations, if the patient we think is chronotropically incompetent, we may actually put in a temporary pacing wire because increasing the heart rate is really one of the only kind of bedside things that we can do for these patients. Dr. Kremer, I think you summarized beautifully some of the unique challenges of aortic regurgitation, the limited tools that we have but do have and considerations for therapy such as pacing or otherwise using met some certain pressors such as epinephrine. I think that aortic regurgitation as well really underlines the fact that valvular shock comes from a mechanical and structural problem that really requires ultimately a mechanical and structural treatment. And so this brings us to our final patient, Alex Alden, who is a 65-year-old man with known moderate to severe aortic stenosis with decreasing exercise tolerance, peak velocity of 3.7 meters per second, mean gradient of 35 millimeters mercury. His aortic valve area on last echo was 0.8 centimeters squared. And this is all in the setting of a LBEF of 40%. He has now developed sepsis from a urinary source before he could get further diagnostic testing of his aortic valve. And he was initially resuscitated with crystalloids, but now he's hypotensive, hypoxic. He has a falling urine output and a rising serum lactate. We know that he's spiraling into shock, but we don't know whether it's distributive shock from sepsis or cardiogenic or a combination. Dr. Kremer, there's a lot to unpack here. Could you briefly remind our audience on the pathophysiology of aortic stenosis and why it can lead to cardiogenic shock? Excellent. Thank you. And this is a tough round. I hope all the patients aren't like this, but hopefully we'll kind of get the best outcomes that we can, all difficult situations. And, and as you noted, this one is, is I, I think, a, a bit more unclear in terms of what's going on and what's driving the shock at this point. So we know the patient has aortic stenosis. And I think of that as a fixed stenotic narrowed lesion, right? So that it's difficult for the, the blood to flow through that narrowed aortic valve. And that results, again, in a, in a decrease in stroke volume and a decrease in cardiac output. And then there can be a lot of afterload mismatch between the aorta and the left ventricle. So we know that aortic stenosis, as it progresses, can eventually lead to uh, a decrease uh, in cardiac output and cardiogenic shock. I would say that fortunately, I think with our current therapies, transcatheter and surgical aortic valve replacements and our current level of monitoring, you know, we see that less commonly than, than of course, we did, you know, even when I was a resident 15 years ago. But yeah, so what, what, what is the next step here? I mean, I, I think that, you know, we talked about the importance of, of getting a good echocardiogram to understand the clinical picture. But this patient, I, I think, also needs their hemodynamics de defined with a right heart catheter. Because as you said, we don't know, is this cardiogenic shock, is this distributive shock, or is it a mixture of both? And I would say 
increasingly in the modern CCU with the diversity of patients that we're seeing, I think more and more we're seeing patients who do have mixed shock. So that is, you know, cardiogenic shock, but an inappropriately low SVR, so a vasoplegic or distributive component to it as well. So I think for, for me, for this patient in my coming to in my CCU, I think, you know, one of the first things we're going to do is, is place a right heart catheter to define the hemodynamics. And what I would say is in this patient, we're already, I think, in a fairly advanced stage. He's lactates up, the urine output is going down. And, and oftentimes, I think defining the hemodynamics with the right heart catheter earlier on allows you to treat the patient to potentially avoid advancing to this stage where you're already seeing evidence of, of end organ uh, dysfunction. Thanks, Dr. Kremer. You know, I, I do have to make a plug for some of our prior episodes, and please listen to them on the podcast where we did go over right heart cath hemodynamics. And I, I also would like to give a plug to one of our Academy fellows, Amit Goni, who put together a wonderful infographic that also goes to right heart hemodynamics. And, you know, as we discussed with Dr. Jason Katz from Duke on our first episode of the series, the, like you mentioned, Dr. Kramer, the modern CCU certainly has patients that present with much more mixed physiology. And I, I also have to give one more shout out to Amit Goyal and Dan Ambinder. You know, they deserve all the shout outs, but the first shout out for that initial episodes on aortic stenosis that were on the podcast, you know, when they were baby cardio nerds, I believe it was really our first episode. So for our listeners, please go back and listen to that for some more detailed discussion. As you mentioned, Dr. Kremer, you know, this patient has known aortic stenosis and to maintain that cardiac output in the face of that increased afterload of that aortic stenosis, the LV is going to have to generate higher and higher systolic pressures. And there may be an insult here that's leading to decreased LV systolic pressures and specifically distributive process here. So I do agree a right heart cath will certainly be helpful. You know, Pranothi, you want to tell us kind of the next steps that happened here? Yes, thanks, Karen. Coming back to our patient, there was an additional component I did not mention initially. His echo also showed moderate to severe secondary or functional mitral regurgitation. And after the initial fluid resuscitation, the patient was not improving, remains hypotensive, and is becoming cool to touch and continues to have elevated serum lactate, certainly appears to be in primarily cardiogenic shock. Now, Dr. Kramer, how do we work out which lesion is the predominant lesion, especially in the setting of mixed valvular shock, such as aortic stenosis combined with mitral regurgitation? What are the diagnostic tools that help us and how could a right heart catheterization, for instance, help us in this situation? Thanks, Pranothi. And this certainly is a difficult scenario we face when there's more than one valve that's causing issues. Here, you have a patient with severe aortic stenosis and also has secondary or functional mitral regurgitation. And as was just highlighted, because of the aortic stenosis, there will be an afterload mismatch between the left ventricle and the aorta. And so, you know, that increase in left ventricular pressures can make the mitral regurgitation worse. And we certainly, in the outpatient setting, for example, if it's secondary MR, let's say in the setting of a dilated cardiomyopathy, often with appropriate guideline-directed medical therapy, the mitral regurgitation is very responsive. And in a way, we expect the same thing in patients with aortic stenosis in that if I treat the aortic stenosis by, say, replacing the valve, that the mitral regurgitation may in fact improve. Uh, now, it's not probably not going to resolve, but it will, will probably get better. So in this situation, my first impression would be is that the aortic stenosis is probably the lesion 
causing the problem, but it can be empiric. And, and so what I mean by that, I think you put together your clinical impression, you have your echocardiogram, and you have your right heart catheterization, and you manage the patient based upon what you think is the predominant lesion, and then see whether the patient you know, responds appropriately and, and how you would, have, you would have expected them to respond. So in this situation, I would say my first impression would be that the aortic stenosis is our primary problem. I think more and more, just to touch on a slightly different scenario, is we have patients come in decompensated who have both aortic and mitral stenosis. Could be a patient with, with radiation-associated cardiac disease, with end-stage renal disease, or an elderly patient with a lot of mitral annular calcification. And I, I think those situations, again, are, are very difficult because you know, there, the way you want to manage the patient's hemodynamics may be different, right? So we talked about if, if a patient has severe aortic stenosis and there is systemic blood pressure to work with, you're going to try starting with vasodilators, for example, like sodium nitroprusside. However, if your main problem is uh, mitral stenosis, you don't want to give that patient a, a vasodilator. And in fact, in the setting of, of heart failure with mitral stenosis, you do want to slow the heart rate down. And so you may want to give that patient beta blockers, but you certainly don't want to beta block someone who's tenuous from aortic stenosis. So I think that that clinical scenario is often difficult, but my, my general impression in that type of patient who has both aortic and mitral stenosis, if they're in, they're in cardiogenic shock, usually if you're in cardiogenic shock from mitral stenosis, that's because you've developed pretty severe pulmonary hypertension and the right ventricle has started to fail. If that's not going on, then I would still be suspicious that the AS is usually the predominant lesion, and I would start cautiously treating that first. But, but all these cases are, are, are very difficult. And I think, you know, acute valvular uh, emergencies, as you said, is, is something where I think the invasive hemodynamics are essential. And we have to sort of put our money down, if you will, on what we think the primary problem is and, and try and treat that accordingly. And then just very quickly assess whether we were right or wrong. Yeah, thanks for going through that, Dr. Kramer. You know, I want to back up a little bit and thank Karen for bringing me some sweet memories and nostalgia from that very first episode and heretic stenosis. And I remember it was uh, Dan Abender, myself, and Heather Kagan who were recording in Jackie Zimmerman's basement to just try it out for the very first time. And, you know, like it's been such a journey since then. And current since we were babies, now we're toddlers. We've learned so much and grown so much. But, you know, Dr. Kramer was one of our earliest adopters and mentors and dedicated cardiogenists will remember Dr. Kramer's teaching for, for multimodality imaging for cardiac amyloidosis in episode eight. And, you know, now that I'm an interventional fellow, not a general fellow, Dr. Kramer, I'm just I'm remembering how incredible it is to learn from you in real time and in person. And maybe I'll have to come back and just spend some time in J31 when you're rounding because, you know, the way you go through your perspective about what's going on with the patient, putting together history, multimodality imaging, and translating that to actionable strategies for the patient in the ICU is, is really inspiring. But, you know, getting back to this topic, you talked a little bit about calling for an acute immersion mitral clip in the setting of MR just to temporize a patient potentially as a bridge. What are your thoughts on, you know, translating to aortic stenosis? You know, I'm, I'm seeing my senior structural fellows get a lot of consults from J31, from the CICU for a BAB or a, you know, an urgent TAVR, for instance. What are your thoughts about the role for these decisions and how to personalize that choice from one patient to the next? Yeah, thank you, Amit. And thank you for, for those nice comments. I mean, and, and I've really learned a lot from you and, and, and from, from everyone on the show. And it's, it's just been a great, great resource. And I, I think one of the, the, the things that we like in cardiology is really just to kind of go back to basic principles and see how those concepts explain what we see at the bedside and what we see on the echocardiogram. And I've always 
you know, think that if you really understand echocardiography, that's, that's pretty much the most important thing to being, to being an excellent general cardiologist. I know other people may feel differently, but as an imager, I, I have my bias. I think this program has, has highlighted the value of imaging in the cardiac intensive care unit, specifically echocardiography, and really how you put that together with your clinical impression to try and figure out what's going to be the best course for the patient. So to get to your question of, of you know, when do we think about doing something for the mitral valve as well? And what's the role of emergency structural interventions? I would say in, in this situation where it's a secondary or functional mitral regurgitation, that it's not the primary problem of the leaflets themselves, you know, it's not the mitral valve's fault. I, I think that if you fix the aortic stenosis, you can med- medically manage the mitral regurgitation. If there's a primary problem, such as a flail mitral leaflet, as an example, if the patient also had aortic stenosis, well, you can fix the aortic stenosis, but there's still going to be a flail mitral leaflet. So I think in terms of the going from the ICU to structural intervention, it's of course very different than the, the patient who's coming in, you know, again, with a dilated cardiomyopathy and, and mitral rotation where you may be thinking about percutaneous therapies. Here, we're really just trying to stabilize the patient, preserve end organs so that we can get them a good outcome. And I think as was, was touched upon, there, there really is, I think the interventionists are, are going to have to become more and more used to doing these emergency structural procedures. And, and I think, you know, as you know, here and, and a lot of other places, I mean, you know, emergency TAVR really saves a lot of people. Like the case we just touched upon with acute severe aortic regurgitation, you know, we've taken some of those patients immediately to TAVI and they, they can walk out of the hospital a couple of days later. Or you may do a structural intervention, say mitroclip, a, a pat muscle rupture, and the idea may not be to have a perfect result, but again, the idea is to be able to get out of shock and have the patient recover and then go through a definitive surgery later on. So I, I think that's, that's really changed, you know, for me in the past few years, even how we think about the CCU and the role of structural intervention there. And I think that's only going to continue to increase. But in terms of, you know, how do you sort of decide which problem to fix? Well, of course, you want to fix the primary valvular problem. And I would say in this situation, you know, you, you, you want to fix the, the aortic stenosis. And if the MR is secondary, I think in most situations, I, I would favor just sort of medically managing that and see how it goes. But if you have a primary leaflet problem of the mitral valve, you have primary MR, then clearly that's something that's probably going to warrant intervention as well. Dr. Kramer, this has been such a fantastic and nerdy discussion of valvular disease and shock here on the Shulman Ward at the Cardio Nerds Medical Center. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. Before we leave, we have to ask, what makes your heart flutter about caring for the critically ill? Thank you, Pranothi. I mean, this has been awesome and it's, it's really been a great discussion. For, for me, being in the cardiac intensive care unit, what I love about it is it's when I get to, to most be a generalist. And, you know, as we touched upon the sort of complexity and diversity of the patient we see now in the modern cardiac intensive care unit, this is where I really feel like I'm, I'm most generalist compared to the other things I do. And I think imaging sort of overlaps with that as well. I mean, we, we see a lot of different diseases and a lot of different pathologies as cardiac imagers. So it really, really appeals to, to kind of the primary care doctor in me, if you will, even though it's, it's of course, in an intensive care setting. And the second thing is, I think related to that is just the team-based care that we provide in the CC. And I'm just fortunate in our situation that, you know, we have just such great nurses, we have such great respiratory therapists, medical students, residents, fellows, all of the services. And, you know, so it's just very gratifying to really learn from all these different people and all these different perspectives to really try and help as many patients as we can who are, who are very, very sick. 
Thank you, Dr. Kramer. And thank you, Pranothi, Amith, and Karan for this amazing discussion. We've covered so much today from acute valvular lesions and how they compare to stenotic lesions and valves in series. And like you're getting at, Dr. Kramer, this shows us the extremes of cardiology physiology involves the team-based approach to treating these patients. So thank you for joining us. This has been an amazing discussion. Thank <laughs> you.